Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to gather together like this, to to read your word together, to hear the words of Jesus. Be with us. We want to gather in your name. Ask that you be here, right here with us. Illuminate the word for us. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Today we're going to talk about John 14 through 17. Uh, John 14 through 17. So to set this up, I'll give you just a question to ponder, a rhetorical question to think about as we read John 14 through 17 together, and then we'll talk about how we're going to go through it. question is this, if you knew you were going to die in 24 hours, I mean, it is 8.09 on Saturday morning, you knew by 8.09 tomorrow morning, Sunday morning, you'd be gone. What would you want to say most to your family, to your friends, to your children? What would you want to say? Would you want to communicate something about some final instructions, you say, there's just some things that I really, really want you to know. There's some things about me that you've never really understood. And I want to make sure you know those about me before I go. What would you want to say? Because in John 14 through 17, this is the upper room discourse. This is Jesus's last words to his disciples. And they're beautiful. We're going to read them together. And we're going to read most of it together. But all through the book of John, Jesus has been saying, look, I'm going to die. My hour is not yet come, my hour, but now is that he would say things like, My hour is not yet come, but now his hour is coming. He has already had the triumphal re-entry into Jerusalem. He has had the last supper with his friends. He has washed their feet. Judas has left the room. This is the he's in the upper room with them, and he's giving them this final words with about 24 hours to go. It's actually about six hours until he's arrested. And you have four chapters where it's almost entirely Jesus talking. There's some back and forth, but it's almost entirely Jesus talking. So we're going to go through that, kind of read it together today and look at that and see what he has for us. Here, let me show you what, how I want to do this today. I'm going to give you a brief overview of the chapters. And it's, it's going to be a little different today than usual. I'm not going to give you big outlines or comparative charts or all that kind of, that kind of stuff. Just a brief overview. That'll be like 90 seconds. Then we're going to dig into the chapters, chapter by chapter. I'm going to read the chapters to you, read some uh, sections to you. And then we're going to, I'll, I'll give you some brief observations and commentary on those. But that'll take about half our time, roughly half. And about halfway through, we're going to switch to the concept, which I think is the major theme of the chapter that I really want to spend some time on with you guys, which is friendship. And that if we're really, really ahead and we're blasting through all that material, we got, we're sitting around staring at each other with 15 minutes to go, we'll talk about the five secrets of living from Warren Wearsby. I don't think we'll get there. But just as a program note, this will be a little different than we usually do. Usually our pattern, our consistent pattern in this Bible study is to put uh, the scripture up on the screen. People only in the, in the crowd read it. Today, I'm going to break with that pattern a little bit. So forgive me in advance. I'm going to be reading a lot of it to you. And you'll see because a lot of it is going to be in fits and starts. And I'm going to say some things and make some comments on things. So just to, it'll be too disjointed if we go back and forth. So forgive me for that in advance, but I'll be doing a lot of the reading to you. But like I said, we're going to read some fairly large sections. Just read through them because they're the words of Jesus and they're so great. Make some quick observations and move on and then cover friendship in the second half of our time together. Quick overview. This passage, these four chapters are just incredible, and they have incredible verses, any one of which could be your life verse. 
I just picked three just on this page. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. One of the cornerstone verses of Christianity. John 14, 27, probably my favorite verse in this section. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And 16.33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. These four chapters are filled with verses like this because they're all the words of Jesus. And there are a number of themes in, the, in these chapters. Ten themes. This is the closest thing you're going to see this morning to an outline. But ten different topics that come up in these four, four chapters. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, very clearly demonstrated in these four chapters. Prayer. The world, mostly descriptions of the world and our, and our opposition in the world, or the world's opposition to us as Christians. Peace, obedience, love, belief, and friendship. And friendship is the one we're going to spend some time on in the second half today. With that little introduction and overview out of the way, chapter by chapter, let's just start reading together. John 14, 1 through 6. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And I've read this. I learned so much preparing this talk for you guys. I've read this so many times. I don't think I've ever really stopped and focused on verse 4. Jesus says it with so much confidence. And you know the way where I'm going. After all, I've been with you for three years, night and day. I've been pouring myself into you. I've been giving my life to you. You've watched. You've walked with a Savior on earth for three years. Thankfully, by now, i got 24 hours to go in my life. Thankfully, by now, you all know the way. And I can rest assured that you all know the way where, where I'm going. It's, it's wonderful. And then Thomas, of course, you think it would be Thomas, says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And it, look, I, it's very easy for me to be hard on Thomas. It's easy for all of us to be hard on the apostles because they all say things like this that sound like they're idiots. And we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of the full canon, the benefit of the word, all those things. It's very easy to be hard on the disciples. But Thomas, and it's a little easy to be hard on Thomas because he doesn't show up that often. And when he does, it's stuff like this, right? So but it's not like the other disciples jump right in and say, oh, Thomas, speak for yourself, right? We all know where Jesus is going. It's just, just you that are confused. Thomas, Thomas is speaking in the collective. We don't know. And you can imagine all the other guys saying, yeah, he, yeah he's right. I don't know. We don't know. You know. And Jesus says that, that cornerstone verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Okay, very quick observation on this, and then we'll go on. Every other world religion, every other secular viewpoint, every system of thought has a way to say, look, I can tell you how to live. I have a, system, a set of truths that you adopt. And if you adopt these truths, I can show you the way to live, and you can have a great life. Every other religion says that. Jesus comes out and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's the, there's the point of the truth of this. It's easy to think of Jesus as our teacher. He is our teacher, but he's not primarily our teacher. He is primarily our redeemer. He's not showing us the way. He says, I am the way. He's not, he's not saying, I'm going to give you some truths so you guys can live by those truths. Every other religion says that, not ours, not Christianity. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the life. It's all me. Okay, that's the only point I want to make on this. And right now, Thomas is feeling kind of bad in the room. And he's going to feel really good here in, another, in a minute, or much better anyway, because Philip is going to speak. 
And Jesus says this verse in 1470 says, and this is an interesting verse. Remember, he's just said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And now verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And it's an interesting verse on its own to kind of dwell on, because in the first clause, it's in the past perfect tense. He's saying, it's almost like he's saying, okay, maybe you guys don't know me as well as I thought you did. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. But, you know, forget about it. Bygones are bygones. That's neither here nor there. He kind of turns the corner midway through the sentence and switches to the future tense and says, okay, but from now on, we're good. From now on, we're good. If you, you, and from now on, you know him and have seen him. So we're all set. We're all good. And then Philip asks what I think is the most embarrassing question in scripture or the most embarrassing statement. He said, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus, and you could read these words. You could read these words with some anger in Jesus voice. I don't think that's, that's not the way I read it. I think he just, he reads it almost with sad exasperation, right? He says, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And again, it's easy to, for us to be hard on Philip for saying these things. But you think about what Philip would have been thinking at the time. And Philip would have known that Old Testament passages where God said, no one can see me and live. Right? In Exodus 33, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And God says, I can't show you my glory. I'm going to tell you what I'll do. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over the rock. I'm going to pass by. You can look at my back, but you can't look at my face because no one can see me and live. So you could look at Philip as being really, really bold and saying, Jesus, I know it's not really possible, but I think you could do it. Show us the Father. I really want to, I'm like Moses, desperately want to see the Father. And Jesus says, ah, you want to see God? Do you want to see God? Take a look. Right in front of you. And it's, it's this kind of, it's this, just the sad exasperation in Jesus' voice that you can just hear. I've been with you so long. And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. And so here's another good thing for you to, to remember Philip in a really good way. We, we are, there's a huge theological truth in this passage that we are very fond of, and all of you know it, which is that Christianity is not a religion. It is a what? It's a relationship. It is not a religion. It is a relationship. So if you're ever saying that to a friend, you say, and you're trying to win someone over to Christ, you're talking about your faith, and you say, Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. And they say, where? Where does the Bible say that? Take them right to Philip. Because what Jesus says in his sad exasperation is not, oh, Philip, oh, Philip, haven't you heard all my teachings? Have you not all this time, have you not come to know my teachings? Have you not listened to my instruction? He says, no, have you not come to know me? The whole point of Christianity is a relationship. This little section right here kind of sums up one of the major thoughts in these four chapters. Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to die, but in these four chapters, I am going to tell you why I am going to die, and why I'm going to die is to have a relationship with you. Not so you can remember the things I've said and then follow my instructions to have a great life, but so you can come to know me personally. And if, and if you're ever wondering where to go in the Bible to find that, that for the, to prove that proposition, that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, go right to Philip here in John 14. Nice legacy for Philip. Now, Next embarrassing question. This is from Judas, not Iscariot. And you got to think that from this day on, every time Judas was introduced, this Judas, it was always Judas, but not that Judas, right? <laughs> Judas, not Iscariot. After a little while, 
Jesus is talking, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you and me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them. This is a nab memory verse. He who has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what has happened that you are not that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not the world? And what the commentators would say about this is what Judas was Judas, not Iscariot, was expecting was the big reveal. He thought this is where it's all going, right? That's the plan. We get to the triumphal under Jerusalem. We're going to do the Passover thing. But at some point, real soon here, Jesus, there's going to be the big reveal, right? Where you're going to show yourself to the world. You're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. You come back. Maybe you'll kick the Romans out. You'll take the throne. That's where we're going, right? That's the plan, right? And I want you to think about what Jesus would say. Think about what you would say. If he, if he, he says that Jesus just said this wonderful verse in John 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he is he's the one who loves me, will be loved by my father, and I will love him. And, 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 and Judas, not Iscariot, says, I thought the plan was for the big reveal. Where we, isn't, that, isn't that where we're going? And listen to what Jesus says. Again, think about what you would say. You say, let me, let's back up and show you the whole plan. Jesus doesn't do quite that. Watch this. The next verse, Jesus says, Jesus answered him and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. It's almost a complete reiteration of verse 21. Almost completely. In other words, Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Judas, not Iscariot, wants to take this in this whole different direction, and so let's talk about the grand scheme. Let's talk about the plan. And Jesus says, listen, maybe you didn't hear what I said. You can almost hear him reading this verse again. Let me say this one more time. Watch me, Judas. Watch me, Judas. Let me read this to you one more time, real slow. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Because this is, this is Christianity, and this is so much more important than this, this plan for the big reveal that you were thinking about, Judas, right? What I'm talking about is you can have the Father and I dwelling inside you. We will make our abode with you. That's huge. No other religion offers that. No one talks about that. We are going to dwell with you, make our home with you, make our abode with you. I'm not going to even talk about, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to reveal the whole plan to you right now. You don't need to know that. Let me just repeat what I just said. This is really important. We are going to come into you and make our home with you. It's fascinating the way Jesus responds to that. That's John 14. We're going to go right to John 15, where Jesus says in verse 1, and I did this for a reason. I'll put it in quick ahead. I'm going to read these verses. These are the first five verses of John 15. They're very familiar, but I've left out verse 3 for a reason. You'll see why in a minute, okay? Because I've read this many, many times. I know you have too, but I, I never saw verse 3 before. But let's, let me just read it to you, and I'll show you what I mean. In 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Now, wait, stop right there. Because he, the, as soon as he talks about the vine, everyone would have thought about Isaiah 5. We won't go to it right now, but Isaiah 5 is that song about the vineyard. And it says, my beloved had a vineyard upon a fruitful hill, and he planted the vineyard. And then verse 4, kind of a heartbreaking verse where God says, what more could I have done for my vineyard that I've not already done? And yet it produces nothing but bad grapes. And then in Isaiah, he says, that is a metaphor for the nation of Israel. And Jesus comes by and says, they would have all known the, the vineyard song from Isaiah. And Jesus comes by and says, you know that vineyard thing? I am the vine. I'm the whole thing. Everything about that vineyard is all about me. I am, I am the source of life for the entire vineyard. And then he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. He's talking about the Father. 
so that it may bear more fruit. So I am the vine, the, the, the Father, through his pruning exercise, is creating this wonderful, incredible vineyard, all drawing its life through me, right? I am the true vine, right? To verse 4, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It is a very coherent theme, the entire thing. He's saying, I'm the vine, you're going to be plugged into me, you've got to abide in me. If you abide in me, you're going to dwell in this love with the Father, you're going to draw your lifeblood for me. The whole thing is a very coherent theme, right? You can't bear fruit without me, you've got to be connected to the vine, all coherent. Now, look at verse 3, right in the middle. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. It's a complete non sequitur. It doesn't relate exactly to the thing before it, it doesn't really relate to the thing after it, it just plopped there right in the middle. What is that about? Jesus knows, and I got this from Greg Bryan. Greg Bryan is a great sa uh, saying. The default mode of the human heart is what, Greg? Self-justification. Self-justification. The default mode of the human heart is self-justification. Religiosity. We all want to save ourselves. And Jesus is, it's almost like Jesus is in the middle of this incredible teaching on the vine and the vineyard saying, look, I am the vine. You are the branches. You've got to abide in me. I know how you're going to take this. I know what you're going to do. You're going to turn this into a checklist and a task of things that you've got to do to achieve abideness and achieve some kind of status with me. And that's not what I'm talking about. You are already clean. You're already clean. And you're not clean because you've accomplished great things. You're not clean because you've been great people. You're clean because of the word which I spoke to you. You are clean because I have declared you righteous. Now, back to what I was saying about the vine. It's pure gospel inserted right in the middle of the paragraph it, because he, it's almost like he says, I know you're going to get this wrong, and you're going to turn this into a religion, and it's not. You are already clean. Now that you are clean because of the gospel, this is the central gospel message, you're already clean because of what I did for you, because of my declaration of righteousness for you. Now, in as a result of that, in response to that, abide in me. Be connected to the vine. Draw your lifeblood from me in proper sequence. Yes, I want you to do all those things. But I want you to do this in a proper sequence. You're clean because of what I said, not because of what you do. Someone said it here the other week, and Greg said it before. Every other religion is due. Christianity is done, right? You are clean because of what I've done. More in John 15. John 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Two observations in this passage. First of all, you can read this and say, and I think in the early part of my life I'd have read this and say, okay, I get it. The goal is to bear fruit. I got it. That's, the, that's what Jesus is telling me to do. I've got to bear fruit. I'm supposed to lead people to Christ. I'm supposed to impact others for the, for the kingdom. Now, what is, what is bearing fruit, by the way? Maybe I should just start with defining that. Bearing fruit. Fruit is your spiritual impact in the life of others. Fruit could also be the fruit of the Spirit in your own life from Galatians, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things, if they are in your life and increasing, that is the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So you say, I, the command is, i got to produce that fruit, in my own character, and I've got to go impact the world for Christ. That's what Jesus commanded us. And I want you to notice this, because the command in John 15 is not go bear fruit. The command is abide. I want you to abide in me. And if you abide in me, if you're connected to the vine, you will bear fruit. 
your life will change. You're going to impact others for Christ. You may not even know it. But the, the fruit is going to come from your life as a result of abiding in me. And abiding in me is not a task you do. You, there are things you do to be close to Christ, but it's not. it doesn't make you clean. You're clean because of what I've already done. Now abide in me, and if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. One other thing on this, again, if I, you know, as a younger Christian, if I had read this, I'd said, yeah, you, you could say all that. You could say all that, you know, grace, grace, grace. All sounds really nice. But it does say, keep my commandments. Right? Right there. You could say all this, all that grace talk is really nice, but right there, if you keep my commandments, you got to keep the commandments, right? If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. So right there, you know, you got to you know, shape up and you got to be good. You can't just rely on grace. You've got to be good if you want to be in Jesus' love and be part of his inner circle. Now, how do you read that? Is that the way to read it? If that's the way to read it, Jesus would have said, you know who really abides in my love? I think you guys are okay. But you know who really abides in my love? The Pharisees. They are so much better at keeping the commandments than you clowns. They're, they're way ahead of you guys. They, it, it, those are the ones who are really abiding in my love. And that's not it. That's not it. If you read that, you'll say, Jesus is saying, if you keep my commandments, as you say, that's keeping, that's keeping the Ten Commandments. Then you think, I've got to shape up before Jesus will accept me. And you're going you're gonna to miss the whole point of Christianity. Just saying, no, that's not it. In fact, right there in the verse, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Jesus is the one that keeps the commandments. Jesus is what has kept all the commandments perfectly for you in your place as your substitute. He's the one who has done it already all for you. Now he says, I want you to keep my commands. Well, what are his commands? We know this because at the end of John 13, right before this section, John 14, at the end of John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you. What? That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, this is, and then John 15, 12, it's not on the page, it's the next verse, but would have come right after it. This is my commandment, in case you missed it when I said it in John 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So he said, look, I've, I've made you clean. I want you to buy to me to produce fruit. And you know what I'm really commanding you to do? Love each other. Build a loving community with each other. Maybe that's why in 1 John, when it says, you know, God gives us his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Jesus saying, this is, I've already accomplished everything for you spiritually. You don't need to earn anything more to be perfect in God's eyes. I did that all that for you on the cross. Now what I can, my command to you, love each other, build a loving community with each other. And you say, oh, I like doing that. That's not hard. Okay, that's John 15. Now, John 16 is a turning point for the disciples. John 16, turning point. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, in hours coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Now look at verse 29. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. And this statement is not attributed to any one disciple. It's all, it's all in the it's plural. The disciples said, it's almost like they all said a declaration of unity, right? And they all just said it all at once. 
don't know what actually happened, if that's the way it played out, or one person said it, but they all assented to it. But it's a declaration of their faith from all of them. Look, now we get it. Now we believe. And I wanted to show this to you because you see there's a progression in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. There's a progression. In John 14, the disciples start out, they start asking all these embarrassing questions. They still don't get it. With 24 hours to go and three years with Jesus, they're still like, I don't know the way. I don't, I, you know, show us the Father. I, I haven't seen him yet. They're still trying to figure it out. And here's this turning point where they say, look, now we believe. And Jesus acknowledges that in verse 31. It says, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, an hour. So Jesus acknowledges that. That's great. But then listen what he says next. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is in me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So Jesus says, you, you're getting it. You're getting it. And I have confidence now that you're getting it. At the end of John 16, you made this, you've, you're making the turn and you're starting to really understand it. That's great. But you're all going to abandon me, you know. You're all going to scatter. I still love you, but you're all going to abandon me. You're all going to turn your back on me which is a really important point and brings us right to John 17, the high priestly prayer. I'm going to read to you almost, not all of it, but almost all of John 17, because this is the high priestly prayer, Jesus talking about us to the Father. John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven said, Father, the hour has come. See, this is the hour. The hour of my death is right here. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So let me pause for a second before turning this slide. I think we have three slides on John 17. The way to read John 17, the way I thought was always helpful to read John 17, is in light of the dance of the Trinity. We talked about this before. I think you've all heard that phrase before. But the idea of the Trinity is that the idea of the concept of the Trinity, theologically, is hard to understand. Three and one, one and three. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But all are God, right? So how do you, how do you explain it? How do you understand it? And it's it's difficult concept theologically to understand, but the point of the Trinity, functionally, is that they have been loving each other through all eternity in what theologians call the great cosmic dance. Each one of them glorifying the other, each one of them being other-centered. At the center of their relationship, at the center of the Godhead is a relationship. It is love for each other. And so much of John 17 is reflecting that. And what Jesus is saying is, we have had this from all eternity, and this relationship, this, this dance is what I want for them, what I want them to enter into. So that's one way to think of, one thing to think of as you read John 17. Well, keep going, John verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I have been glorified by them. I'm going to come back to it before I flip the screen. Let me read again verse 7 and 8. 
Now they have come to know everything you have given me is from you. For your words, which you gave me, I've given to them, and they receive them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Okay? Keep that in mind. I'm going to skip to verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Sometimes you read these things and Jesus is talking about the apostles and you say, is that really something he's writing about me or is that for the apostles only? And here you don't have to doubt because he's saying this is not just a message for the people in the room. This is for us because all of us have come to believe through the ministry of the apostles. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Remember the command is to love each other. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory, remember the dance, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. There are verses like this, like 23, that almost sound like poetry, like he almost breaks into song, right? And it's just Jesus' pure delight in his relationship with the Father. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Observations. This is called the high priestly prayer, and it's called a high priestly prayer for a reason. The priest is like an intercessor, and Jesus is saying, Father, let me talk about these disciples that are following me, and I want, and then I have things I'm going to ask you for them. But the key to this, and I got this from a, a sermon from a guy named Brian Bill, done about 12, sermon about 12 years ago, and until, until I saw this, I never quite saw the pattern in John 17. You can read John 17 just for its own sake and say, these are beautiful words. It's just the high priestly prayer is so wonderful. I'll just read it. It's so meaningful. It's so great. But I didn't see the pattern until this was pointed out to me. And I didn't see the pattern in John 17 from John 14, 15, 16, all the way through 17. But Jesus says incredible things about his followers. And because the words are about us, he says incredible things to the Father about us, right? He says, why, why is he praying for his followers? Because they belong to the Father. In verse 6, they were yours. They are yours. Because the Father gave them to him. I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of this world. They were yours and you gave them to me. Because they were faithful. And they have kept your word. Really? The next one. Because they believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. Lord, Father, they believe that you sent me. In verse 7. Because they bring glory to Jesus. In verse 10. I have been glorified to them. They're all going to scatter. We've all read John 17 before. The way Jesus talks us up to the Father is just astonishing. Three chapters ago, in John 14, they're asking embarrassing questions. Like they still don't get it. Jesus is going to die in 24 hours. They still don't get it. Just in John 16, they make, finally make the turning point. They said, look, we think we, we think we understand. We really believe. Jesus, now you believe. You're all going to scatter. And he just turns to the Father, the high priestly player. I don't think you'd get this if you just started John 17, read John 17 alone. But if you see the whole pattern, read it all the way through. Look at John 17. Jesus says, oh, Father, these guys, they're so great. They've been solid. They believe in me. They have glorified me. And, and look, this is a theological question. Does the Father know you're sinful? Father knows everything, right? 
I remember talking to a guy once about this in his Christian faith. And I said, how do you think the father sees you right now? And he said, boy, I don't know. Lord knows I'm trying. Lord knows I'm trying. I hope that he could just see past all my faults and my flaws and see his way clear to let me in because I'm doing my best. And I said, listen, the message of Christianity is that the father looks at you right now through the blood of Christ and says, you know what I see when I see you? You're perfect. I see nothing but perfection in you. Hey, because if this was any other group, Jesus, Jesus could have turned to the Father and said, look, I know they're screw-ups. I know they never quite get it right, even now they don't really understand. But, but be merciful to them anyway. And that's not what he says. It's just an amazing high priestly prayer. They have believed in me. They, have, it, it, they are clean, Lord, Father God, because I have declared them clean by my word. That's why they're clean. Now, in light of that, there's some things I'd like to ask for them. What he prays for his followers. He said he wants, he wants us to be secure and protected. Father, protect them by the power of your name. He wants us to be filled with joy. Verse 17, 17 verse 13. These things I speak in the world that they may have joy, my joy, made full in themselves. Jesus prayed for us to be distinct from the world. I do not ask you, you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. We are here in the world, but we're not of the world. He wants us to be sanctified. And we skip this verse, but it's an incredible verse. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Which, by the way, is why we come here on Saturday mornings, right? Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We want to be men of the word. That's the whole point of this. We want to be people, people that dig into the, into the word so that we can be sanctified. Sanctify them in, the, in your truth. In the truth, your word is truth. He wants us to go out into the world. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. These are the things he's praying for us. But in the high priestly prayer, see that pattern. He, despite who we are in, in our sin, we are clean because he's made us clean. And Jesus turns and talks us up to the Father and says, these guys are perfect. Now, there are things I want for them. Okay, that's the summary of John, the overview of the four chapters. It is 843. Let me pause there for comments, questions, anything. Pat's got something. It is interesting the way this this passage unfolds, and I like the fact that you repeatedly said Judas not Iscariot, because Judas left at the end of chapter 13, right. which points to the idea that there is a point in our lives where we have to make a decision, and Judas, he leaves, so he is no longer present for any of this teaching, and when Jesus prays in chapter 17, these you've given to me and I lift them up, it doesn't include Judas. Right, right. He's not included in the elect, to use a Reformation term. Right, right. right. So. Yeah, there's a verse I skip where he says, I, all the ones you've given me have I have kept except the son of perdition. right. To fulfill what was written according to your plan, Father, right? But all the other ones I've kept, right? Yeah, so there's an important lesson for us. And I like your statement about, you know, we need to abide. And if we abide, the fruit will come of itself. And hopefully others who have to make the decision, because we don't save anybody. It's the Holy Spirit Amen. that abides in us. That's right. Amen. Yeah, Joe. You know, I'm sitting here, Jim, and thinking, Jesus is looking at these 12. And he's saying, you know, 
Father, you've given these to me. These were yours. You've given them to me. Now their responsibility is to take this truth to the entire world. Right. He's looking at the 12 of them. Right. That's his gang. I mean, he didn't recruit them. He didn't take some from here and take some. From they all come from the same region. Yep. Most of them were fishermen. Yep. And most of them were not well-educated. Right. And he's saying, you're going to take it to the entire world. The truth I have put in you. Right. Now you get it. You said in 16. Right. And, you and you're and responsible. And he's looking at them. He's telling them, Father, thank you for these. And his confidence is they're going to do it. And here we are. There's that old Bible story you probably have heard where Jesus gets back up to heaven and talks to and, uh, Gabriel or some angel. And Gabriel says, oh, so, uh, so you're back. Welcome back. So what's the plan? Jesus says, well, I gave the message to these 12 guys. What kind of guys are they? Well, they got some issues, you know, but this, that's, 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 that, you know, that's the plan. And he says, oh, you know, I, I know those guys. Uh, what's your plan B? <laughs> and Jesus says, there is no other plan. There is no other plan. Those are the apostles. That's it. We got one over here. Go ahead, John. Yeah, the other thing that really is striking about this is that here are these disciples. They're finally starting to see who Jesus really is. Right, right. For, for years, they've been confused and blinded and so forth. And Jesus even tells them, you know me, but I'm going to let you know me more. And by the way, you're going to scatter. And then it's not until the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes in, that their eyes suddenly are wide open. Yeah. And that's the beauty of the, the pre, the middle, and then finally the Pentecost moment. And they see, as we should all be seeing. Yeah, the Holy Spirit comes up at the end of every chapter. And we could have spent the whole time just talking about that kind of... Uh, didn't go into those passages, but the end of 14, the end of 15, and the end of 16, in every chapter, it says the helper is going to come. The helper is going to come. The actual word is paraclete, because it's hard to, this one of the words, when I was studying this, people say it's hard to translate, because it can mean helper, it can mean advocate, comforter, counselor, but the Holy Spirit's going to come. And in one of the chapters, Jesus says, the Father's going to send the Holy Spirit to you. Another one, he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, which means we're together, we're going to send the Holy Spirit to you at Pentecost when it comes. And, and when, he, when he does come, you say, how did John remember that entire monologue word for word? When he does come, he's going to bring it all back to your mind. Every word I said perfectly. Yeah, Luke. Jim, I thought it was great when you said that he's our redeemer. What's important, I think, and in, in what we have to think about is that the present day ministry of Jesus, right? I mean, you mentioned that plan B, you know, I'm going to send these 12 guys out. Right. Well, if you look at Romans 8, Jesus is interceding for us according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Why? Because Jesus is reigning. He's putting all things under his feet. That's the present day ministry of Christ. Jesus had to leave the world to go present himself to the Father to complete our salvation. Then he's seated at the right hand of God on our behalf. Yes. For us. For us. And, we, you know, we have the great privilege and responsibility to be sanctified to be more like Jesus. And, you know, the balance of it is when you said before, I agree 100%, we don't justify ourselves by keeping the commandments, but we get grace to keep the commandments as a witness to the world. Because he says in John 17, so the world may know that you love them as you love me. Right. So we can be a witness to the world. How, you know, we can't be hypocritical. Right. And, and think that, you know, because we have grace, we don't have to, you know, not, not murder anybody or right. not, not honor our father and mother, you know, not commit adultery, right. all these things. We, we want to accept, you know, before, before, when you, like Greg says about self-justification as the default, mm -hmm. 
What's before is that, God, you owe me. Look at this. Right. I did all this. Look at what I've done. That's right. Look what I've done. Mm-hmm. But really now we know we owe everything to him. Right. And because of that, we live accordingly. We live out of love and appreciation for him. Yeah. And, and that's why I see, so there's a balance there because I think a lot of times we look at the law and say, we're not under the law. Right. But if we fulfill the law, we please the Lord. We want to fulfill the law because we want to please the Lord. We want to, not because we get any points or credit for it. We want to, right? And the, and the area you're talking about, Lou, is that if you say, oh, it's all in a grace, I don't have to do it, you drift over to the other side, which is license. And you start saying, well, I can do anything I want. And then your witness is blown. And look, you're, you could say, and it was your, the, the point about your witness and the way you keep the commandments, if you say, well, I'm a Christian, but I can commit adultery, like, he forgives me. That is not going to win anyone over to Christ, right? That is going to blow blow your witness. But but what Jesus says is the command I'm giving you to love each other, they will know you are Christians by your love. They'll know you're Christians because you have this incredible other-centered loving community that reflects the Trinity, right? And that's going to be the, the, the real powerful witness because there's lots of good people in the world. Like I say, well, this, this person's not a Christian, but they're a good, decent person. They don't commit adultery. They don't murder. What about that? That's not validation of Christianity. This is we're good people, right? But the, the real testament is going to be our love and our community with each other. But coming over, yeah, Tim. I want to go back to just the beginning of chapter 15 for a second, sure. um, because I have a little bit different perspective on verse 3. Sure. And that is in verses 1 and 2, Jesus says that he's the true vine and the father's the gardener. The father cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And then he's going to go on and tell them after verse 3 what happens to those branches. They're burned. So verse 3 is telling the disciples, you're not one of those branches. Mm -hmm. So he's concerned about their well-being and their understanding because he knows as he's giving this example, the question's going to arise. Am I the branch that's cut off and burned or am I the branch that's pruned and bears fruit? Right. And he's telling them because of me and my words, you're the branch that will be pruned and bear fruit. Yeah. So he's giving them assurance before he gets to that part. That's a really great point. I think that remember the two line illustration we talked about sometime, your progression of the Christian life is growing in your awareness of his holiness and your awareness of your own sin. And what I love about the disciples, at some moment, they have that flash of insight. And, and one moment is when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they say, is it I? Which means they all kind of thought, yeah, I could see myself betraying. I mean, I have it in me to be that evil, right? And that's just a moment of insight, a self-awareness into your own lostness, right? And you're right. They might have said, maybe I'm not a branch. Maybe I'm not connected. And he says, look, yes, not the son of perdition, right? Not Judas. He's out of the room. But you are all clean. Good, great point. Thanks. Yeah. There's a tremendous promise in the, in the reading today. Uh, there's a warning. Jesus says, those who love the world hate me. Mm-hmm. But he, he makes this profession that he's overcome them. Yes. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17.9, the hardest wicked above all the other organ who can trust it. But he also makes a distinction where he declares he's greater than our hearts. Yes. For God's he's greater than our hearts, dec- he knows all things. Huge declarations of yes. his sovereignty. He's, he's in control of all things. But what's remarkable about this is the exchange that takes place. Yeah, the great exchange. In all of this, he's taking our place. He's crediting to us his righteousness. Right. The heart of the gospel, substitution. Right, he takes our place. That verse, it starts as saying, in whatever our heart condemns us, but God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Because our heart can often condemn us. He say, I'm not really a branch. I'm not connected enough to the vine. I don't do the right things. So I'm a worse screw up than the disciples. In all these things, your heart can condemn you, but God is greater than our heart 
and I'm not trusting my heart for my justification, how I feel about my justification. I'm trusting his word. All peace. That's right. It was perfect peace. Great point. Thank you so much. So, yeah. I have a question about when Jesus says, when you pray to the Father, I will not pray, pray to the Father. I will not pray for you. He is our intercessor, but he's not praying for us. Is, he, is that to say that? I am in G God, the Father is in me, you are in me, I am in you. You know, you don't have to pray through me, even though he is our intercessor. Our, we do pray in his name. Right. Just, can you unpack that just a little bit more? I I, I absolutely cannot, because I don't know. I don't, what do you think? I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. I don't know. Jim Lovis. Well, hopefully the Holy Spirit eliminates. Right, so in that passage, he sits there and says, no longer do I ask on your behalf for the father himself loves you he he's trying to connect look you can go right to the father now right because there's a love relationship and why because you've loved me you've loved my words you believe he sent me and so because we're reconciled and connected with him we have a relationship with him i wanted to share an impression this week too in in 17 uh was this jesus saying father i desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where i am be with me so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And it's so, so intimate here between God and Jesus, and he's allowing us to see this. But this idea of, I can't wait for them to be with me, to be in heaven. Well, why aren't we there now? If that's what you really want, if this is what your ambition really is. And then as I thought about that, backing up, he says, as I, and I think it's 15, he says, as you have sent me into the world, he said, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. As you have sent me into the world, I sent them. Okay. There's something about how we conduct ourselves here that will make our time in heaven with him more meaningful, more special, more, more significant. As you have sent me into the world, well, I, I left. Right. Man, when I go back, it's really going to be rejoicing Yeah. because I uh, kept your word fully you know, and I accomplished your mission. As you have sent me, I sent them. Something about us accomplishing God's will for us in this life will make that beholding of his glory, the time where we were we're with him, more significant, yeah. more special. That's why we're still here, because we can make that even more meaningful. And bear fruit. Uh, we can bear fruit here. Yes, indeed. Right. And it doesn't remind you of Philippians when Paul says, you know, what am I doing here? To depart and be with Christ would be so much better. But if I enter man on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, right? So I'm going to stay here and Lord and do what your plan is until you call me home. Friendship. Friendship. We'll take the rest of our time talking about this. I got an uh, article popped up on my, on my iPhone, on my Apple news feed about two, three weeks ago. And it was an article from a science magazine. And the, art, the title of the article was The Lonely Hearts Club Man, which I think is obviously a play on Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, but this was called The Lonely Hearts Club Man. And the article kind of summarized for me a bit, but it talked about a study that was done in 2008 in the college campuses, and they have kids come by the college campus, they say, how, do you, how steep do you think that hill is right here in front of them? And the students who showed up alone gave an estimate of the steepness of the hill, and the students who showed up with friends gave a different estimate, and they, once they had friends, the estimate of the steepness of the hill was not as steep. And the point, the kind of cute point, was if you have friends around you, every mountain is easier to climb. If you have friends with you, you can, you can climb mountains, it's much easier. 
But let me read the rest of this to you because it gets a little less sweet. Yes, mate, the benefits of friendship are profound. Having a strong social circle is associated with a longer life and fewer illnesses. A major study by scientists at Brigham Young University in the U.S. found that long-term social isolation can increase a person's risk of premature death by as much as 32%. Your pals lower your blood pressure and trigger positive chemicals in your brain. People with strong social networks are less stressed, more resilient, and more optimistic. They're more likely to be at a healthy weight and less likely to suffer cognitive decline. They also enjoy some protection from cancer, heart disease, and depression. But there's one group, a big one, that is missing out on all these benefits. Men. Men are lonely. Growing numbers of men are standing at the bottom of that hill alone and overwhelmed at surveys point to a recession of social connection among us men. A poll in 2019 concluded that one in five men have no close friends, twice as many as women. In 2021, a survey found that since 1995, so from 1995 to 2021, the number of American men reporting that they had no close friends jumped from 3% to 15%, the five-fold increase. In the same research, the number of men saying they had at least six close friends fell in half from 55% to 27%. So not only is there a crisis of friendship among men, but it's getting worse. So this passage, John 15, talks about friendship. So we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about friendship and what it means. What's the role of friendship? If you look at even secular literature, you don't have to look at Christian literature or the Bible. Secular literature will tell you that friendship is the primary way in which we form our identity. How do you know who you are? You say, well, I, am, I'm a, I have a good sense of humor. I have a tender heart. I, I have The things you think about yourself are generally because that is the way that you've been reflected back to friendships your entire life. You form your identity. You, kind of, you know who you are through your relationships, through your friendships. But in the spiritual realm, in Christianity, most of us have come to Christ through our friends. There's some friends led you to Christ. Some of us had the wonderful privilege of being led to Christ by our parents. That's great. But most of us come to Christ through our friends, and then we grow in Christ through our friends. You grow in Christ by coming to groups like this. So one of the points, let me jump right to the, one of the points of this section of our, of our morning today, is that you can feel like I have my spiritual life. I have my prayer life. I have my spiritual life, my walk with God. That's great. And I have my friends over here. And what do those two things have to do with each other? And the point I want to make and leave you with today is that they have everything to do with each other. Your friendships, the whole concept of friendship is integral to your Christian life. And let me give you one more. It's not just growing in Christ, it's growing in spiritual maturity and wisdom. Because what is, what is wisdom? Wisdom is being in touch with reality. Foolishness is being out of touch with reality. So if I say to you, you know, I'm a 58-year-old middle-aged man, I think I can play for the NFL. I'm going to go try out for the NFL. It's going to be great. I quit my job. I take my life savings. I'm going to go down. I'm going to find it. And I'm going to sign on with, the, with some people say, you are hopelessly out of touch with reality. You're a fool. Being wise is being in touch with reality. I'll give you I'll give a more poignant example. If I say, I think I'm really fit. I'm in great shape. And I'm going to do the Ironman competition. My friends who know me, if I only had a friend who was a heart doctor, or he would look at me and say, you are hopelessly out of touch with reality. <laughs> you are being a fool. You're going to kill yourself. You'll never make it, right? You think you're fit. You're not as fit as you think you are. Your friends will keep you. They'll, they'll be able to tell you what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. If you let them, if you open up and then just be really 
poignant about this. If you give them open season on your life to tell you, because a lot of times you say to your friends, I think I'm really fit. And they go, yeah, sure. Yeah. Cause they don't really want to tell you because they know you don't really want to hear it. Cause you, we do this over time. We say, I don't really want to hear what you say. I want to believe what I believe. But if you give your friends open season, they will tell you and they'll say, yeah, yeah. no, no, no. Here I can see doing the Ironman, but you, I, 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 you might want to start baby steps. Like take a walk around the block first, do something different, right? Because if you give them open season, they'll know you and they will make you wise. They'll help you because they'll reflect back to your strengths and weaknesses. They'll keep you in touch with reality. But if you don't do that, you're going to drift off and get hopelessly out of touch with reality and you'll be a fool. So friends have an important role in your life. And why is that? Because the source of friendship is that we're all made in the image of God. The source of friendship is the Trinity. And that's why it was important to read so much of John 17 in the high priestly prayer. The source of friendship is the Trinity because we are made in the image of God and God is all about relationship. The triune God is all about relationship. Not other religions, but Christianity, the triune God is all about relationship. We are made in the image of God. So if you feel lonely, that is not a weakness. You don't say, God, I know you should be sufficient for me. I'm so sorry. I'm lonely. I shouldn't be lonely. You're right. You should be enough for me. I'm sorry. It's not a sin to repent of. You're lonely because God has made you for relationship. Because he is relationship. At his core, he is relationship. That's loneliness is a sign that you're in the image of God, not a sin to repent of. Adam, before the fall, in the garden, before the fall, when he was perfect, God looked at him and said, it's not good for man to be alone. And he didn't say, Adam, how dare you be lonely? I should be enough for you. He, Adam was perfect before the fall, and God said, you need companionship. We need friends, and we need each other. And friends have a huge role to play in our spiritual life. It's not like spiritual life over here and friends over there. They are completely integrated as a Christian. Now, how do you make friends? What's the making of friendship? Common ground. Do you find some kind of common ground? Quote from C.S. Lewis, uh, who writes about this. Even if the common ground of the friendship is nothing more momentous than stamp collecting, the circle of friendship that you are forming rightly and inevitably ignores the views of millions who think it is a silly occupation and of the thousands who have merely dabbled in it. And C.S. Lewis is actually, here the way he conformates it is like this. He says, friendship starts this way. He says, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. You too? I thought I was the only one. But Lewis is actually a, a little hard on this. So... Let me read what he, he says to you, but he, he says, you have to have some kind of common ground. You can't just say, just let's just be friends, right? He says, that is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. According to Lewis, this is a writer who's writing about C.S. Lewis, no friendship can arise unless there is something for the friendship to be about. A common interest, such as baseball or common commitment, such as studying linguistics or serving the poor. There's something for the relationship to be about. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. If someone asks the question, do you see the same truth? And you reply, I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. No friendship can arise. Although affection may. There will be nothing for that kind of friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something, even if it is only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who, can, who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. So C.S. Lewis is a little harsh on this. He said, you've got to have some kind of common ground, but that's where all friendship starts. In Christianity, of course, we have a common ground 
And that common ground is a common affinity for Christ, right? We have all found Jesus. That is our common ground. But this allows me to bring up a very important point. And this next sentence has really kind of revolutionized my Christian life. And I thought about this for the last 20 years. So I put in red for you. Christianity is not an affinity group. Christianity is not an affinity group. We are not here because we all have a common interest in some hobby. We are not here because we all have a common perspective. We're not here because we all have the same kind of beliefs or certain worldviews on, on the issues of the day. We, we are not here because we have the same socioeconomic status. Christianity is not an affinity group. We're not here because we're similar. We're here because we are all redeemed sinners. Our affinity is only for Jesus. And if you come to, if you're in Christianity, I'm going to be harsh about this, but if you're in Christianity, say, I, I like the church, but I don't like those people. They, they look different than me. They talk different than me. They smell different than me. I don't like those people. You're thinking of Christianity as an affinity group. I like people that are like me. I like Christians that are like me. The beauty of Christianity, the whole, the beauty, and this is, this is the lead up from John 14, 15, he says, your command is to love each other, build a loving community. The beauty of Christianity is it's not an affinity group. The beauty is that we are all connected by the fact that we're redeemed sinners. And when you meet someone who's totally different than you, on the totally opposite end of the political spectrum, and the totally opposite end of the socioeconomic spectrum, and you say, you know what, you too? You know Jesus too? I thought I was the only one. You have incredible fellowship with people. If you meet people, some of you have with different cultures that have nothing in common with you, nothing at all, but they know Jesus. What, you too? You know Jesus too? Oh, me too. I thought I was the only one. The, we, our bond is that we are all redeemed, redeemed sinners. We're not like each other. We like each other. <laughs> we like each other because Jesus loves us, loved us first. Christianity is not an affinity group. One of the most important things I want to get to say today. So how do you make friends? Progressive disclosure. Progressive disclosure. I, you, friends tell each other secrets, right? And actually, this is part I didn't know. Oh, I should have said up front, a bunch of these thoughts on friendship come from four different sermons Tim Keller has preached on friendship. As many of you know, Tim Keller is my, one of my, not my only, but my primary source of inspiration for these things. They're actually going to be in the appendix, so you can go find them yourself and listen to them if you want to. They're great. Okay, so this is this thought I was not my own is from Tim Keller. They said the actually the Hebrew word for, for friendship is the same Hebrew word for secret. So if you look at a verse like the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, some versions will say the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, or the counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, because it's the same Hebrew word. The translators struggle with how to translate it. Friendship is equal secrets. Friends tell each other secrets, but they tell them progressively in small bites. I disclose to you, you disclose to me, progressive disclosure. I was in a Bible study once where we were talking, we were just very new Bible study, getting to know each other, and one of the persons thought it was the right moment and said, and, and said something incredibly disclosive about themselves, some deep, deep, dark secrets about themselves. And everybody else in the Bible study did probably what you think they would do. They all sat there in stunned silence. Oh, wow. That's really deep. And we, then we went on to something else. And I talked to him later, and he and I actually became good friends. And he said, yeah, back at that moment, I really thought at that moment when I disclosed this deep thing about myself that everybody would go around and they would also disclose their deep things about themselves. But it didn't happen. All right, because you went too far too fast. To build friends, you have progressive disclosure, progressive disclosure. But the point here in disclosure is the verse when Jesus says, if, and if anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. And that now memory verse, and I will love him. And then what does it say? And I will disclose myself to him. And when Judas, not as scary, says, I thought this was the big reveal. Let's get this again straight. I will reveal myself to you. 
What I'm offering you as Christianity is progressive disclosure. I will reveal myself to you. And how is he going to do that? He's going to do that through his word. And again, these, Keller talks about this in his sermon. He says, when you're a Christian and you read the Bible, it's not like reading some other book. It's not like reading the, the works of Muhammad or the works of Confucius or some great mind. When you read a book about something like that or, or Aristotle, you say, wow, I have an intellectual connection with a great mind. What a great mind who lived long ago. When you read the Bible, when you read the words of Jesus, when you read the high priestly prayer, you're having connection with someone who's alive. And that's why when you're a Christian, you read the Bible, it moves around. It says things to you say, I never saw verse three before. Wow, I never saw that. Oh, I read this many times. We did this two years ago. We talked about this passage. Now it's different. Why? Because there's someone on the other end. There's someone else pulling on the other end of the cord. There's someone, there's a living person on the other side of these pages talking to you. And you're, when you're a believer, you know what I'm talking about. It speaks to you. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living. It's active. It's talking to you. Progressive disclosure. You're confessing your sins to God. You're talking to him. You're pouring out your life to him. You're praying without ceasing, ceasing, and he's talking to you. Progressive disclosure. That's the offer of Christianity. But how do you make friends? The one choice you make. The one choice you make. There's an old movie from 1988. I bet you no one, I bet you no one here has seen it. It's called Tequila Sunrise. Yep. So you have seen it. It's classic. That's kind of a B film. It was uh, actually Kurt Russell, Mel Gibson. Thank you. That's one of it. Mel Gibson, Kurt Russell, and Raul Julia. And the basic premise of the film is very few movies about friendship. This movie had a couple of friendship themes going. Most movies are all about romantic love. But in this movie, Mel Gibson and Kurt Russell grew up as friends in high school. They're best buddies. Kurt Russell goes on to be a cop. And Mel Gibson goes on to be a drug dealer. And they're sitting on the swing sets. They're saying, gosh, what is it that says in just because you're friends in high school, you're friends forever. But we're friends forever. And Mel Gibson is trying to turn over a new leaf. He's left drug dealing behind. He's not going to do it anymore. He's going to go clean, go straight. And, you know, that's good, good for the friendship with Kurt Russell, the cop. Right. But, but Mel Gibson has another friend, Raul Julia, Carlos. And Raul Julia says, so we just got to do one last job. One last job. We do one last job. This is it. This is it. And then we'll go clean. After this, this is it. One last job. And what does Mel Gibson do in the film? Because he's, he's friends with Kurt Russell, but he's also friends with Carlos, with Raul Julia. He betrays him. He turns him in. And there's one scene that is so poignant that you can pull it up on YouTube now and you see comments. People say, this is like, it's only like 30 seconds. It's the best scene on friendship in American cinema ever. I, and I, I hadn't seen it in 35 years. I went back. It was exactly as I remembered it. Raul Julia comes up to Mel Gibson on a dock after he knows he's been betrayed. And he says, how could you do this? We were friends. We were friends. How could you stab me in the back? And he says, friends are the only choice you make. You can't choose your family. You can't choose your lovers. He said, that's a romantic thing. You can't control that. You can't control that any more than a compass can control pointing north. Friends are the only choice we make. We chose each other. We were friends and you stabbed me in the back. How could you do this to me? And a spoiler alert, a few seconds later, Carlos is dead. So his last words to his friend, Mel Gibson. C.S. Lewis has a slightly different take on that. Close, but not exactly. C.S. Lewis says words that could have been an inspiration for this uh, the script. He says, as for Eros, romantic love, half the love songs and half the love poems of the world will tell you that the beloved, your beloved, is your fate or destiny. No more your choice than a thunderbolt, for it is not in our power to love or hate. 
Cupid's archery, genes, anything but ourselves. Just like Carlos says in the movie, you can't choose your lovers. Cupid's arrow, right? But in friendship, this is C.S. Lewis talking, being free of all that, we think we have chosen our peers. But C.S. Lewis takes a slightly different take than the movies. He says, in friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been a work. Christ, who said to the disciples, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. This view is that God is bringing Christian friends in your life for a very specific reason. They are the way God is going to work in your life. They are going to bear fruit in your life. You're going to bear fruit in their life. Your friendships are an unbelievably integral part of your entire Christian walk. Not some little thing you do over here. So how do you make friends? You've got to be a good friend to make friends. You've got to be a good friend to make friends. Keller has a saying, he says all the time, a friend always lets you in and never lets you down. Always lets you in, never lets you down. A real friend always lets you in, never lets you down, right? And I'll cover this very quickly because we're going to be running out of time. The marks of a friendship, constancy, carefulness, candor, and counsel. Great friendships are built on constancy. You're always there for the person, always lets you in, never lets you down. Someone who can, you can really rely on. Carefulness, someone who understands your emotions, your makeup doesn't slam you when you're down. A verse here, Proverbs 25, 20, singing cheerful songs to a person with a heavy heart is like taking someone's coat in cold weather or pouring vinegar into a wound. Friends are careful with you. Friends are careful with your emotions. Candor, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend will tell you the things you really do need to hear, but say it carefully. Counsel, right? An abundance of counselors there, Victor, that thing we talked about before, where they're going to help you be wise because they're going to tell you what your strengths and weaknesses are. Those are all the marks of a good friend. But if you read these things, you have two responses. You have longing and despair. Because you talk about friendship enough, you look at what the Bible says about friendship enough, and you say, I don't have that. I don't have that in my life. And it fills you with longing. And then it also fills you with despair. You say, you know what? I'm not a good friend either. I look at the friendships I had, and I, I think of all the things where I, someone said, let's get together. I said, yeah, we should get together. We never do. And I, I think about it. You know, the things, the events that I've missed and things I've done, I say, I've been, a, I've been a lousy friend. So it fills me when I read about what it really, what, how great it is to have friends and how great the, the, the role of friends in, the, in your life and what God has in mind for friendship. And I say, that's great. I wish I had that. I don't. And I don't because I'm a lousy friend too. It fills me with longing and despair. Now, what's the response to that? This passage in John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. Subversions say servants. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. See, a friend lets you in, reveals secrets to you. Jesus says, I'm making these things known to you, right? But here's how we're going to wrap it up. Jesus, of course, is the one true friend. Jesus says, I chose you. And that when Jesus says, I chose you, what he's saying is, look, if you think of your Christian life primarily as, a, as God's servant, you could say, well, God's getting something out of this. 
If Jesus says, I'm not calling you servants anymore, you might say there's a quid pro quo. I give God service and he gives me blessings, right? Jesus says, that's not what it's about. Jesus says, I am choosing you as my friends. Why? Pure choice. I get nothing out of you as friends that I didn't already have. Nothing. I love you. Why do I love you? What do I, why? Because I love you. Why are you my friends? Because I chose you. And what do you know what he wants back from us? Choose him back. Pure choice. When you, when you move in your, in your Christian life from being a servant to being a friend of Christ, and you say, Lord, I just love you. I just love you. Not because I'm getting heaven, not because I'm getting anything else. I just love you. I just choose you back. And when you do this, this changes your repentance entirely. And, God, and I want you to know this. I tried this this week, and it's really, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Psalm 55 it's, it's a deeper repentance. Psalm 55 says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. And David said, look, if an enemy stabbed me in the back, I could take it. It's like Carlos in that movie. If an enemy did this, I could see it. But it was you, my friend. And when you see your sins, if you see your sins as a servant, and you go to your repentance to God, and you see your Christian life as a servant, you say, Lord, I know I'm your servant, and your humble servant, I did it again, I let you down, I'm so sorry. You, you, if you approach God that way in your repentance, your repentance ends up being a little hollow. You start saying things like, you know, yes, you're, you're big, you're wise, you're wonderful, you're the king of the throne, I'm just a puny little servant, I let you down, I don't know why you don't just zap me off the face of the earth, I'm so sorry, I promise I'll never happen again, I'll serve you better next time. That's the kind of your repentance. And you might actually morph that into a different kind of repentance where you say, you know, but Lord God, if we're honest about it, I've been serving you pretty faithfully all these years, and there's times you've let me down too, you know. There's times you just, you haven't come through the way I thought, if we're really fair about this and honest about this. I've been holding up my end of the bargain pretty well, and there's been times, not today, but there's been times, if you're approaching God as a servant, but if you approach God as a friend, you say, I stabbed you in the back. You're my friend, and I let you down. I did this this week, and it just changes your repentance. It makes it so much deeper. But Keller preached on this. He said, this is a clean repentance that doesn't leave you to guilt, like the other servant kind of repentance. I, didn't find, I found this to be a much deeper, more difficult, more meaningful, but much deeper kind of repentance to say, you are my friend. You chose me when you didn't have to choose me. You chose me when I was a lousy friend, and I stabbed you in the back anyway. So moving this, this is the key part. Moving from a servant to a friend, how do you do it? You have to know that Jesus laid down his life for you. And in this passage in John 15, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, guys, huddle, 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 huddle. We're all friends, right? We're all friends. Get it? It's not servants, it's friends, right? Go. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't just say we're all friends. He says he ties the whole concept of friendship right away with his death, right into his death. And he says, greater love has known than this than I lay down my life for my friends. My friendship the, 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 is the cornerstone of our friendship together is that I lay down my life for you. And this is the secret of how you move from being a servant to being a friend is seeing that what he did for you is being a friend to us, laying down his life for us when we were lousy friends to him. Okay, let me stop there. So there's a really interesting verse in the book of Psalms. It says you're better served to be smacked by a friend than kissed by an enemy. Yes, faithfully, yeah, right. And what's so profound about that is much, much later, it was Judas who betrayed Christ with a kiss in the garden. So it's foreshadowing what yet to God. Yeah. And it, it just displays his deity because he knew what was coming. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And we'll wrap up with this and we'll pray and we'll be done. But uh, the great point that Jesus was betrayed by someone who was his friend. Yes. Jesus says, I have chosen you, and yet one of you is a devil. But he but but he was a friend. Go ahead. So a great example of this is Nathan. So Nathan, it begins with the verse by saying, uh, Nathan was a prophet who was sent by God. Right. That's how it starts. Then he articulately tells him this loving story about this individual, and David becomes swollen in his pride. Right. But he loves him enough to look at him and say, you are that man. Yes. But what I would close with is Romans 5, 8. Again, I brought this up last week. And again, Jesus did not die for his friends. Jesus Christ died for his enemies so they could become his friends. Yes, yes. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. All right. I'll pray and then we'll wrap up. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you that you are our friend, even though we are worthless friends, and yet you loved us anyway. Thank you for redeeming our souls. Be with us today until we're again together next week. In your, in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode, and remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.